The reading is to be found on page 1069, St. John, chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy food for these, these bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. <clears throat> Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of, five, of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. morning again. If you keep your Bibles open <clears throat> in front of you. How are we doing this morning? Mixed response? That's okay? Because actually that's life. We all come in different places, from different experiences of both the week and the season in life we're going through. But let me just pray. Father, this morning, would you take this small offering and do something miraculous with it? In Jesus' name, amen. It's not going live, is it? Okay, uh, uh, okay. let me just say that three months ago, uh, pretty much three months to the day, I was in Israel 
I've been to Israel before, and I had, amongst the time I was in Israel, one of the days, a day that will stay with the rest of me, for, stay with me for the rest of my life. It was a day that started at eight o'clock in the morning by baptizing seven people in the River Jordan. It was the most extraordinary privilege I think I've had, one of the most extraordinary privileges I've had. And then by lunchtime, by lunchtime, I was at the place that traditionally people see as the place where Jesus uh, gave thanks and these, load, these five loaves and two fish fed a multitude of 5,000 men plus the others with them. As I was in the Roman Catholic Church, it's a very simple um, monastic church that's built. What you realise as you go around there is they tend to build a church where some, they think something miraculous has happened. And, and as I was in the church, it's just a very simple church, I just knelt down there and was praying for you and praying for me. Do we really think that I have, or you have, what it takes to transform this parish? Do you really think I've got it? Because if you do, you may want to think you're in the wrong place. But do you think you've got it? As I knelt there, as I prayed in a sense of God being very present with me, I said, Lord, this is all I've got. It's just me. This is all I can offer you. But would you do a miracle with it? Would you multiply something through it? Would you do something through this offering? That's the place of vulnerability I come to you this morning. We're going to look at this passage that's very well known. It's one of the most famous biblical accounts um, that you'll find five loaves and two fish. Actually, for those who don't know, this is the only account, other than the resurrection of Jesus, of a miracle that appears in all of the five, uh, five, my mind's gone, uh, all of the four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, it's actually the only miracle that appears in all of those other than the resurrection of Jesus. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you'll see in verse 1, John gives you some background. This takes place on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Essentially, Jesus was out in the middle of nowhere. But according to verse 2, a great crowd of people followed Jesus out into this place of the, in, in the country. The tense of the verb you'll see, um, that you won't see, but will, is, is in that, is that they were followed, they followed him, and they kept on following him. They were already following, but they carried on following him. After they saw miracle, after miracle, healing after healing, this crowd followed Jesus to this place, this remote place where we look at this encounter here. John tells us in verse 4, that the Jewish Passover feast was near. Every Jew who had read, studied, and knew the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, since childhood, knew about the Passover. They knew about how God had miraculously led his people through the wilderness 
providing manna. Great, we're on. If you move it on one as well, Brian, that'd be great. Uh, providing manna for them, ultimately led them into the promised land. John is writing this account of the loaves and the fish with that in the background. If you know your Old Testament, if you know the Passover, you'll see the richness, a greater richness in this passage than might initially look as you look at it. Because what we see is John is also pointing to the fact that Jesus is the goal of the Old Testament. Jesus is the one that the Scriptures point towards. He keeps pointing to it, and just Jesus crosses the far, to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. Like Moses, he feeds his people out in the wilderness. Jesus is recreating the miracles of the Old Testament. He's the Messianic prophet that we see prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18, that the, Jew, the Jews were looking for. This is Jesus. This is who people have prophes- prophesied about. And this miracle of five small, it's like pitta loaves. You, we're not thinking of Morrison's or Waitrose beautiful little bloomers. We're thinking pitta bread, five small pitta bread, and uh, two f- small fish. <coughs> Jesus miraculously multiplies to feed only 5,000, not only 5,000 men, but the people, the women and the children who would be there with them too. Now make no mistake this morning, Jesus is, John is recounting a miracle of Jesus. However difficult you may find that to believe this morning. See, the miracle didn't just take place in the hearts of people. The miracle just didn't take place in the minds of people but it happened out there in the real world with thousands of eyewitnesses. It was a clear, direct intervention of God. The miracle is not, as some would naturalistically like to interpret this story, that Jesus got this little boy to share his small offering, then everybody brought out their lunches and then shared it with everybody else. It's not the first example of the great tradition of bring and share uh, in churches that we have about it. There's many reasons why that's not an acceptable interpretation, but essentially it makes no sense of Jesus, it makes no sense of John's gospel, it makes no sense of the whole account, and it makes no sense of who God is and and how he's worked in human history. So what I want to do this morning is to look briefly at three things we can, if you move it on, Brian, to, if, and again, and again. Look at three things that we can learn from this, um, from this passage. It's that God's miracles often begin with an awareness of need. Now we read in verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a crowd um, coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to, to eat? Jesus recognised that they were hungry, that they had needs. He wasn't oblivious to it. He wasn't so holy, so absent, so great, so godly, that he didn't see what was in front of him. But I wonder whether you're in touch with the needs around you. Whether you're aware of the needs in our community. Or actually whether you're just content with the status quo maybe living with low expectations in our lives. Well, 
Do you know what? As long as the kids aren't on drugs, and they're not on drugs as far as I'm aware of, as long as we're not getting calls from the police, you know, actually things are okay. It's okay. So there aren't major fights between me and my wife. There's not too much complaining. It's not too toxic. Do you know what? It's, it's okay. You know, I'm getting a promotion at work. My garden's nice this year. I've got a new car. Things are doing okay. My neighbourhood is quite peaceful. Do you know, things are okay. Things are okay in the world. Many people have commented that one of the, one of the many reasons, particularly in the West, we see so few miracles, is we content ourselves with the status quo and what we have to give. We're not aware of need in its biggest sense and unaware that how that can be met. Jesus sees the need. He sees your need and my need this morning. He's not oblivious to your needs this morning. I wonder what you think Jesus sees when he sees Walcott Parish or Bath this morning. Do you think he's impressed by our history, by the beauty, by the diversity? Or do you think he sees spiritually starving people? People whose lives, do you think he sees, you know, do you want this group of people in this parish, in this city, do you know they're doing pretty well, it's great, nothing to worry about. Or do you think he sees people without peace, without purpose, without hope? sees children who are lonely. He sees people spending their lives on the trivial things in life, collecting things, going to more and more things, spending our life doing all sorts of things, watching hours and hours of television. Some of us, including myself, could get, you know, spend far much, too much time on our computers. sees children with no vision of beauty, no vision beyond the suffering that they're enjoying. What do you think this morning when Jesus looks at Snow Hill or at St Andrew's School or the residential bits around us or the traders down here or the other businesses around us? What do you really think Jesus sees this morning? Most of all, when Jesus looks at a city, when he looks at a place, he longs to see people connected and to know a Father who loves them in heaven. People who don't know their Creator and don't know the Saviour who came to bring them back into relationship with their Creator. Let me just briefly tell you a, a story of someone very famous. You, late one evening, some of you know there was a professor he was at his desk working, looking at the day's, next day's lectures. And he was shuffling through his papers on his desk as he was one of those places that were just full of papers. And he was about to throw away a magazine that somehow had ended up on his desk. It wasn't even addressed to him, wasn't even supposed to be there. His, uh, the cleaner who was responsible had mistakenly put this magazine on his desk. And he, but it caught his attention. He opened it up and it fell open had a particular article that said this. It said, the needs of the Congo mission. As he sat there reading it, with a nonchalant wonder what this article's about in that slightly disinterested way that you do when you sort of just flick at something, he was suddenly struck by those words in the article, the need is great here. We have no one to work in the northern promise of Gabon in the central Congo. 
It's my prayer that as I write this article that God will lay his hand on me, his hand on someone, and that as God lays his hand on someone, they will respond to, to this, to come and help us. The professor closed the magazine and wrote this in his diary. He said, my search is over. And he gave himself to the Congo. That professor's name, some of you may know, some of you know, was someone called Albert Schweitzer. The article in this magazine was intended for someone else, actually. The magazine was never intended to go to his home. But actually, by accident, it ended up on his desk. Somehow, this, this cleaner just left it there. By chance, he noticed it, and by chance, it seemed to leap out at him. Schweitzer also became known work. He became famous for his work in Africa. But was it by chance? Was it by chance? This is all God's providence. God's providence means that it takes something that comes for God to awaken something within us. The circumstances for that to happen were completely exceptional. But God, who was involved in the detail of this life, suddenly brought it aware through a whole miraculous set of circumstances and brought about an amazing transformation through it. Miracles begin when we become aware of a need and a sense of God calling us to respond to that. Now, it's obviously when you think about needs, you may say, well, actually, the needs are amazing. It's very easy for us and for me, the temptation is just as great for me to abdicate our responsibility from those needs. Like the disciples tried to do in this passage, we see it a little bit more clearly in the Mark account. They said to Jesus, send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something else, something to eat themselves. And certainly I know we're often keen to abdicate that we might be the person who needs to respond to a need. You know, it's not my responsibility. You know, I've got a busy family, I've got all these commitments, I've got all these concerns in my life. Send someone else. Someone else is much more appropriate than me. They can fend for themselves. Well, what about, do you know what, I'm quite broken. I'm in a really difficult place. Send the woman to a counsellor. Send her to a medical health professional. You know, not me. Can't be me who would want me to be there to meet their needs. Well, I've just had a new baby. Other people's children are my responsibility. That's why we've got teachers. Let the school sort it out. Pay my taxes. They can sort it all out. But I think this morning Jesus says to us, and it is us, it's our responsibility. Go feed them. the first place we need to start as a church is to pray, which we're going to do over the series of, over the a period of Lent. God, give me the eyes of Jesus. Help me be aware. Help me not to be satisfied with the status quo and just accept that life's like that, but to realise God longs to come and intervene and to work in people's life and not for us just to leave it to one side. Secondly, God's miracles often involve a test of faith. If you look at verses 5 to 7, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, 
where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I'd like you to notice the word in those three verses of test in your Bibles. Miracles often involve a test of faith. Sometimes we can be so blind and so consumed with all sorts of other things that we miss what God is doing, what God wants to do, and what he wants to do through our circumstances. And it actually involves testing in life. We face circumstances that are way beyond our control to fix. We're very, particularly in the West, we're hugely self-reliant. But when we do face those circumstances beyond our control, God brings often those places, not always, but often, so that it can grow us, and it can also grow others. It's not just about me. Let me give you an example. I wonder whether you will continue to trust in God's goodness and God's sovereignty when we encounter real difficulty in your life. When you suddenly discover that you have a medical um, answer that isn't what you want. You're diagnosed with cancer, or you have a relationship problem that you just wish would go away, that's beyond your control, it seems. You have a financial problem, and the question before you when you're going through that valley place is this. Do I believe that God still loves me when I'm going through the middle of that problem, in the midst of that problem? Do I really believe that God loves me even when I'm amidst of that really challenging situation? Even when we encounter pain, we encounter suffering, and we encounter hardship, do I believe in this moment, in this moment, that God is for me and he has sovereign, he's sovereign over my life. I'll give you another example. I find in my life that God will often test our relationship with him in some ways. What do I mean by that? We call ourselves friends. What do I think it means to be friends with God? Will you still love God when God doesn't give you what you think you need? Would you still love God when God doesn't give you what you think you need? Jesus speaks to us and says, well, you, you say you're my friend. Is that true? Do you love me for who I am? Of what I'll do for you? Do you love me for me, says Jesus? Or do you love me for what you want me to do for you? Isn't that what relationships are about? Do you love me for me? Or do you really only want me for what I can give you? Give me a ticket to heaven and it's fine. I wonder whether this morning you're tempted that you'd really rather be in relationship with your own personal genie. Rub the pot, make the wish, God sorts it, it's done. Or would you rather have Jesus, who's free to give and free to take away, as he chooses his best for your life that involves trust and growth and commitment to each other. You see, friendship with God is not determined by the list of the things that we bring before God and say to God, you've got to give me those outcomes. 
Now, that does not mean to say, and you need to hear me clearly, that does not mean to say that we cannot come before God with every aspect of our life, with a degree of urgency and continuity and present it all before God. I do regularly. Cry out to God with a very heart for the things we long for, the things we hope for. But we don't determine the outcomes to God. Friendship with God is not dependent on us determining the outcomes with him. In verse 7 to 9, we also see a test of inadequate supply. Philip and Andrew engaged in a little bit of mental arithmetic. I love this little bit of the passage, where you can sort of see Philip calculating the cost of how on earth they're going to feed this huge crowd in front of the people. Now, they sat there calculating it. Andrew's calculating the amount of food it would take, Philip the cost. Now, let's see. We've got these five tiny pita bread and two fish. We've got 5,000 men, then the others. Hmm. This isn't going to work, is it? This isn't going to work. I mean, it really isn't going to work. All of us will face situations in our life where we'll look at the maths and actually there's not enough supply. All of us will look at the equation of what you have and what you're facing, and there isn't enough. The numbers just don't seem to add up. Whether that's financial, whether it's your gifts, your abilities, or what you have around us. Someone maybe asked you to go and lead a home group. You think, well, I'm, I'm not a person who does that. I can't do that. I haven't got the gifts or abilities to do that. You look at what you have, and you think, I can't do it. Or other kind of situations. You think, I am insufficient the task at hand. Let me just say to you this morning, if you personally are in a position this morning where you are facing some, a situation or a thing in your life where you know you're insufficient, I want to encourage you this morning. If you're feeling inadequate, actually it's a rich place for God to do something amazing. If you're in a position in your life where you sit there and think, I have not got the resources to fix this, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried again, then that's a rich place. You do see it through the Bible continually, but also in practice, and I could testify in my own life, but there isn't time this morning to do that. See, the gospel is this. We don't look into our accounts and think we have sufficient funds. We look into our accounts and say we have insufficient funds. We don't have enough righteousness. We don't have enough goodness. We don't have enough love. We don't have enough worthiness within our accounts to pay the debt of heaven. The check bounces when we take up an equation and say, what do we have? What do we bring? What's all centred around us? But the good news is, the good news this morning is this. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, whether you've been a Christian, just become a Christian, whether you have the most amazing experience with God or you feel distant with God, it's not about our sufficiency before God. It's about Christ's sufficiency before us. The good news is that Christ supplies our righteousness. Christ supplies the love. Christ supplies the worthiness into our life. He puts it all into our accounts. Then by faith we draw down on what God gives us and enables us to give others. 
So if you're feeling in a place of inadequacy, the issue this morning is not your adequacy or your inadequacy. It's Christ's adequacy. Do you believe in God's adequacy for all the challenges that we will face? Do you believe in his sufficiency, his competence, his goodness, his worthiness for all that we face in this world? So if there is a place this morning in your life where you're facing, don't feel ashamed. Don't feel judged. Don't feel as though somehow you are inadequate but recognize that you need to bring that before God. How is that hunger of the people satisfied, recognizing they didn't have what it took? Not by chopping the fish or the cream egg into 20,000 pieces or to however many pieces it would take to fill um, us here. It's by Jesus taking what was given by this small boy, giving thanks and then distributing it. He supplied what people could not do. You know what provides a great anchor for your soul if you are someone who's struggling with all sorts of things? It's that little verse, the way, if you look at verse 6, at the end of verse 6, you'll see that little phrase at the end of verse 6 is an amazing comfort to you and to me this morning. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Underline, remember that phrase in your Bible. Because whenever something comes challenging our way, I just want to encourage you this morning, Jesus is not taken by surprise. Jesus is not short of supply. He already has in mind what he's going to do, how he's going to meet that. And I find that personally incredibly comforting and incredibly reassuring. So this morning, whether you're fretting, you're anxious about unsaved friends and family who seem to be as far away from God as they could possibly be, whether you're concerned about the fact that the Gateway Centre needs spending huge amounts of money, we haven't got a clue how we're going to do it. Whether you're concerned about whether this church can grow and flourish so that it's kind of increasing size and people come to Christ and people see it. Whether you're concerned that the lost in this world are not being found. Whether you're concerned that the addicted aren't getting set free whether the captives, the poor, the dispossessed are not being raised up. If you're sat here concerned about those things, I want to reassure you that your Lord already knows what he's going to do. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said this, he said, while I'm sat here sipping my Wittenberg beer, the kingdom of God is marching on. God already knows what he's going to do. And lastly, just join this together. God's miracles often require our participation. It's clearer in the Mark account, necessary than here in the John's account, but the disciples were the means by which these, this crowd got fed. I wonder how you picture this happened. Do you think that Jesus literally went and fed every single one of these men and the families with him? Or did he use the disciples to enable this miracle to take place? God's miracles, and we see it through Scripture, often require our participation. It involves us to get our hands dirty, to make a difference. You know, I would be, it'd be so great, wouldn't it, if I could just pray a prayer and God just zap somebody. You know, couldn't God just do it? I mean, God could just do it. We see that in Scripture. You know, couldn't he just sort that errant child of mine out, that errant parent of mine out, that errant work colleague of mine out, that errant vicar out? 
or whoever else it might be, could God just sort out the brokenness, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, the addiction to the internet and some of the things that we're facing in our society? Couldn't God just do it? Couldn't he just click his fingers? Could God just, couldn't he just heal my broken past? Couldn't God just do it? But the answer is, God can do it. But more often than not, he chooses to use us. He chooses to use each other, not just to say that faith grows in you, but faith grows in other people too. In the next week, and starting on Tuesday, we're going to, uh, we'll start by praying at Lent in the, in, the, um, in the cathedral, and that's a great place to start. It's also why we're praying during the series of Lent. It's great to pray bold prayers, good prayers, godly prayers that God would act. But, bear in mind as we pray those prayers, God may say to us, now you do something about it. That's when it starts to get scary. Christianity is a participatory sport. We often see how through scripture God does suddenly just do stuff, but we also see how God uses people to be the means by which the miracle starts. He asks us to take a step of faith. For example, the priests in the book of Joshua actually had to make that step into the Jordan River before the river parted, before the people who were behind them actually had to kind of walk through um, the, the sea. They actually had to get down, they had to get their feet wet, they had to make a step of faith that enabled things. We see it also in the walls of Jericho and lots of other places too. God's miracles often require our participation and faith. And he gives his disciples this little piece of bread and fish and he says, go feed. I know 400 over there, you go feed them. Here it is, off you go. And imagine the disciples thinking, how on earth is that going to work? But what do we see at the end in verses 12 and 13? The 12 baskets are filled with leftovers. As one popular commentator pointed out, after all has been satisfied, there is more left over than when they started. There were 12 baskets. This is certainly significant. There were 12 baskets left over. The Lord has enough to supply the 12 tribes of Israel. The Lord has enough to supply the needs of Walcott. The Lord is the bounteous and abundant God. He longs to take our offerings and turn it into a miraculous provision. The Lord has enough to fulfill, to meet the needs of world missions. The Lord has enough this morning to meet yours and my needs. So as we begin, um, we're at the beginning of a new season of our church life together. God says to us, and, and a word of encouragement maybe, I am sufficient. I am sufficient for the task at hand. The Lord has enough for Walcott, for your workplace, for the city, and for the world. But, would you place what you have in my hands? Would you place what you have and what you bring into my hands and let me use it for my glory? Would you allow me to work a miracle in and through you? 
wherever you are, whoever it is you spend, it, spend your time with. Not just for the church, this church of things, but also the many things you'll be involved in outside this church. Allow the Lord to work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are sufficient for us. There's nothing about us this morning as we come before you. For every single person here, there's nothing about us you don't know, you don't understand, the inner workings of our hearts, our minds. And I thank you that you are sufficient, that you're not short of supply. But Father, I pray that you would come that you administer to us, that you give us your eyes to see what it is you've called us to. You'd give us that clarity of call again about how it is you want to use us. And that, Father, you grow in us a courage to take those steps of faith that you call us to, to make a difference, to see transformation, to meet the needs of both his city, both his parish, and the many people who are aching, who are restless, who are starving in this world and in this city. Would you come and do that work with us? And Father, I ask for each one of us this morning that we be prepared to offer what we have to you, to be open-handed towards you, to give what we have got, not spend our time saying what we haven't got. And ah, would you do a miracle through that offer to you this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to sing.